Not only do I teach children all day long, but on my off days, I have three children of my own to manage. My oldest is approaching middle school next year, which, according to a very unscientific poll within my own head, literally 98% of the world's population experiences their worst years in school. Very few positive things happen during the awkward years of middle school, and I say that knowing that I am one of those who had mostly good experiences during this time. Except for the fact that I weighed 75 pounds and therefore was always the first one picked to wrestle against during that unit for gym class. While everyone else practiced actual Greco-Roman style moves, my opponent always seemed to think that it was time to throw me in the air and then attempt to catch me in order to suplex me to the ground. While I hope my daughter is popular, for the pure sake of easing these difficult years, it is important that I'm able to instill in her the idea that novelist Vanna Bota expressed, bluntly stating that popularity is not an indication of quality. In the 21st century, we tend to look back at the dictators from the prior century with an expectation of brutality. One expects to hear about Stalin's gulags, Pol Pot's pistol finger, and Castro's bearded gorillas. We don't expect a dictator to use the tool that our parents attempted to instill in us during our middle school years. Namely, when they taught us to kill him with kindness. Today, we take time to examine Juan Perón, the infamous dictator of Argentina, a man who ruled with an iron fist, which he would unclench to reveal a fistful of economic gifts. A man who lulled his people into a false sense of security with the reintroduction of the tango. A man who hid his true intentions by distracting the people through populist policies, regardless of their quality. Juan Perón may not be the image of a dictator that you imagine when you hear the term, but he will become the man who exemplified the concept of a populist dictator in Latin America. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is about the life and legacy of Argentina's most infamous dictator, the rise of Juan Perón. At the turn of the 20th century, Argentina was a pretty good place to reside. They were the number one exporter of grain and near the top of the world regarding its meat exports. Due to a small population residing on what is largely flat grassland, Argentinian cattle are free to roam and graze on nourishing grass. These pampas-raised cattle aren't unnaturally rushed, which serve to make for some of the best-tasting steaks in the world. Today, Argentina's population density is well below the world's average, having 45 million humans living on the land along with 53.5 million cattle. South America's third most populous country was also home to the greatest national rail system in the world, showcasing a surprising amount of industrialization for a nation in the southern hemisphere. Buenos Aires, Argentina's capital, was widely recognized as one of the best cities in the world. 
and perhaps most importantly, the nation was exceedingly stable politically. The ruling class were the Estancieros, a rich landowning oligarchy of the elite. Around 300 families owned the entirety of the Argentine Pampas, the large grassland that was key to successful ranching. That meant that each individual family owned hundreds of thousands of acres of land. These land-owning elites shaped the government to benefit them, put in place harsh overseers, and resided for most of their lives in faraway European vacation homes. While there were obvious income inequality issues, there were few reasons to think poorly on the future of Argentina. In 1913, it cracked the list of the world's top 10 economies. While Estancieros were the elite, the ordinary worker earned more than enough to achieve a high standard of living. During this era, Argentina managed to avoid the unequal stratification of society that had become common in other Latin American nations. This patron-client relationship where the landowner served to create the jobs for the workers of Argentina grew out of the country's colonial history with Spain, a history that ended in 1818 via the successful Argentine War of Independence. The open fields of Argentina leaves individuals vulnerable to violence and theft. In many ways, it is an extension of the Wild West, but on a larger scale. Whenever there is risk in a state of nature, humans tend to band together for protection, oftentimes giving up a significant portion of their natural liberties in the process. Cordillos formed up throughout the 1830s and 1840s in order to provide protection as well as to consolidate political and social control via the use of force. Juan Manuel Rosas is perhaps the most famous of the Cordillos and provides a prelude of the path that Juan Perón will take to power. Rosas first gained political control over the city of Buenos Aires, and then pursued with vigor policies that favored the military, bringing that particular institution within his personal orbit of control. In another preview of Perón's rise, he next negotiated economic deals to bring rivals to his side. To maintain popular support, Rojas picked international fights with European trading partners in order to tap into nationalist sentiments among his prideful people. He would then go on to champion the poor among his people, despite the obvious fact that he was the elite of the elite. Beneath the pleasant exterior of Juan Manuel Rosas lay a brutal dictator who would do anything to remain in power. After his legal term in power ended, he performed the political movement nicknamed Wag the Dog during which he picked a fight with the indigenous people of Argentina in order to rally the people further to his cause. Countries rarely want to change their leader mid-war. He formed the Mazorca, a military-styled wing of the police that killed thousands of Argentinians. He used them to bend the legislature and judiciary to his will. Every aspect of society revolved around his individual personality cult but the leader picked too many fights, and never understood that it was more important to be loved by one's people, rather than be feared. 
he spent the last of his days in his home country in self-exile. His secretariat explained his absence from the public sphere by saying that he's not stupid, he knows the people hate him, he goes in constant fear and always has one eye on the chance to rob and abuse them, and the other on making a getaway. He has a horse ready saddled at the door of his office, day and night. Rosas' life ended in exile in England. Everyone knows the phrase that if you don't learn from history, you are doomed to repeat it. Everyone should also know by now that life after middle school gets significantly better. Despite our ability to pass down our stories as well as our cliches, some things just seem inevitable. Such as the inevitable moment of my daughter coming home from middle school crying because of something that won't matter in the long run. Rosa's story is a prelude to a mistake that Argentina will repeat. In some ways, Perón will improve upon the story, showing that while the people of Argentina didn't learn their history, their dictator may have. Forty-three years after Juan Manuel had left for his exile in England, and 18 years after the Cordillo's death, Juan Domingo Perón was born illegitimately out of wedlock. That fact, combined with the inclusion of indigenous ancestry, forced his family to forge a fake birth certificate so that Juan would be able to serve in the military, a prestigious role for anyone who was not fortunate enough to be born to an Estancieros family. By all accounts, he had a normal childhood, Sports were among his favorite pastimes, and he is said to have excelled in fencing, skiing, and boxing. Although academics were never his strength, Perón rose quickly through the ranks of the military academies. Beginning at age 18, he was promoted multiple times before becoming a teaching instructor at the Superior War School. To an extent, it's disappointing to not know more about his childhood, and how it affected his personality. Latin American historian Ernest Sweeney describes the young man as unquestionably highly intelligent, politically astute, and full of noble sentiments, charm, and good intentions. At the same time, he was deceitful, opportunistic, immoral, compulsively ambitious, and Machiavellian to the core. With other dictators, there are key moments in their upbringing or formative years that signified to us the formation of these core personality traits. The lack of early information in this instance prevents us from understanding how these traits formed, forcing us to just accept Perón for who he was. The closest that we have for understanding comes from Perón, a biography by Joseph Page who looks intimately at his father's decision to abandon his family in 1900. His mother remarried a ranch hand, and four years later sent Juan and his brother to Buenos Aires for schooling. Page quotes Perón reminiscing that, At ten, my way of thinking was not as a child, but almost as a man. In Buenos Aires I managed alone, and the skirts of my mother or grandmother did not attract me as they did other kids my age. He grew up during Argentina's radical era, 
which would have sounded pretty awesome to me when I was in middle school during the early 1990s. Beginning with the 1916 election, the not-nearly-as-cool-as-they-sound radical party drew upon support of women, the middle class, as well as the poor and other stigmatized groups to take the seat of power. Landowners still controlled the army, however, so the radical party was limited in the change that it could enact. Still, they were able to increase union rights, as well as introducing an 8-hour workday, and a 48-hour work week for their citizens. It was also during this period that the Argentine tango gained international acclaim. The sultry dance had previously only been popular among the lower classes. The upper classes of Argentina had been too busy perfecting their Viennese waltz, when the tango suddenly went viral in Paris. The provocative dance was eventually banned in Rome and Bavaria. The international acclaim, both positive and negative, plus the widespread adoption of the radio, brought the tango domestically to the upper classes of Argentina. This Paris-approved dance became the new symbol of Argentinian modernity and national identity. but that doesn't mean that it unified the nation. As we will see, Argentina was a bitterly divided country. Upper-class dancers favored the Tango de Salón, which brought a more sophisticated orchestral arrangement to go with lyrics that were about trivial things such as love. The lower classes of Argentina preferred a more down-and-dirty version of the tango, which was accompanied by any instrument that could bring to life lyrics that regularly protested social discrimination. The radical era came to an end, however, and that ending would provide the key moment that led to the rise of Perón. This has been deemed by historians as the infamous decade, a decade that was so infamous that it lasted for 13 years between 1930 and 1943. The Great Depression annihilated the economic output of the agricultural industry. Their entire economy had been predicated on the successful exportation of meat. With the world in the throes of the Depression, exports dried up and the Argentinian economy severely contracted. By 1933, the price of agricultural commodities were at half of what they had been five years prior. The lack of exports meant that the country was unable to afford the importation of either industrial goods or luxury items, which in turn meant that its export-oriented economic expansion plan was permanently put to bed. Once again, we are gifted an example of the dangers of a monocultural economy relying too much on one industry. Democracy was caught up as part of the Depression's collateral damage. In 1930, the radical democratic government of Hippie Lo Iriosin was toppled in a military coup. Irigosin had been known to his people as the father of the poor, but suffered the disillusionment of those whom he had championed. His advisors had hidden the depths of the Depression as well as the suffering of his own people from him, causing him to not act swiftly enough to save his government. Domestic economic factors resulted in the regime change. 
but the match was lit by America's Standard Oil, who sought a new direction after Irigosin had cracked down on illegal oil smuggling. Irigosin had been a ruler who could have made a positive and long-lasting difference in the land of Lionel Messi. His two presidential terms were the only time that the middle class had achieved important political roles within the government. His regime was unfortunately replaced by right-wing military rule, which paid lip service to the needs of the poor. The new, infamous government banned political parties and suspended the constitution. The entire country began to be reorganized along corporatist and fascist lines. Workers who unionized, or worse, decided to strike against unfair conditions, were labeled anarchists and put through authoritarian show trials. The junta's initial leader, Yuriburu, only survived in power for two years, before succumbing to stomach cancer. His rule was followed by military officer Augustine Pedro Justo Rolon for the next six years. The junta imposed a strict set of rules upon the people, injecting themselves into their people's moral equations by outlawing prostitution and trying their hand at social control by seizing control of all radio stations. Among the most affected by this crackdown were stations which played the tango and soap operas, each of which were deemed as a corrupting force that encouraged women to choose the life of a prostitute. While it may seem like a meandering side quest, examining prostitution's role in Argentina during this time period can be fascinating. For instance, Ohio State's professor Donna Guy tells us that between 1875 and 1936, there was a distinct Jewish feel to the ladies of the night in Buenos Aires. Due to economic separation in a foreign land, as well as inflexible Jewish marriage laws, 39 of the 42 legal brothels in the city of Good Air were owned by Jewish immigrants. The Jewish nature of this ownership stood out like a sore thumb in the largely homogenous Latin American Catholic society. Moral crusaders went after the practice, with the professor writing that fear of Jewish white slavery, the sexual traffic in immigrant Jewish refugee women often conducted by Jewish men, was a topic that preoccupied Jewish communities in Europe and immigrant communities in North and South America from the 1880s until the outbreak of World War II. Of all Latin American cities, Buenos Aires, Argentina, was cited as a haven for white slavers because it had a system of municipally regulated prostitution from 1875 until 1936, when a national law, the Law of Social Paroxys, outlawed brothels throughout Argentina. I promise that we'll come back to this side quest a little bit later, but more significant than its crackdown on supposed moral issues, Argentina's new government turned to the economic theory of import-substitution-industrialization, which was an attempt to limit their dependence upon foreign powers by building up their own domestic industries. Before the infamous decade, Argentina imported most industrialized products. Now they would work overtime to build up their own capabilities to produce. The challenge with import substitution industrialization is the question of how to pay for it. Short of cash, there are only two options, 
either borrow the money from overseas, thus making you more dependent upon others, or produce more product in order to finance the creation of your own industry. Cuba's Fidel Castro chose the former, while China's Mao Zedong chose the latter for his Great Leap Forward reforms. The Union's Joseph Stalin chose neither, instead choosing to enslave his own people to industrialize Russia. Argentina's industrialization began with the railroad. Despite having one of the best in the world, it was largely under the control of British companies. Now the government invested huge cash reserves to make a parallel track that they could control. In 1938, a number of textile industries as well as tire companies, electronic firms, and chemical companies had penetrated the Argentinian market. The efforts ate away at the nation's reserves and further indebted them to European powers. In order to limit the need for debt financing, the government took a direct hand in the running of the economy, introducing price control for domestic consumption and destroying tons of corn and wine in order to keep prices for their goods artificially high. Argentina maintained neutrality during both world wars, in part to gain economically from the conflict and also in part because of divided loyalties. Great Britain was their most significant trading partner, particularly regarding the importation of beef. The U.S. as the regional hegemon actively attempted to push them into the conflict against the Nazis. Still, Argentina had always had a healthy love for the Germanic military culture. Juan Perón was stationed in an Italian embassy from 1938 to 1940. While there, reportedly to study mountainous warfare tactics, he got a first-hand look at the fascist regime in Italy, as well as a front-row seat to watch the breakout of World War II due to Hitler's unlawful expansion of Nazi Germany. It was during this time that Perón, a military officer, became convinced that social democracy was the most effective form of government. We haven't got into Perón's takeover yet. In fact, we're still a few years away from it. But I want to make clear here what state Argentina was in that he inherited. The radical era and infamous decade will introduce a number of policies that would prove to aid anyone who had dictatorial instincts. Economic manipulation had already been introduced, at times serving to protect the poor via unionization, and at other times to enhance the standing of the rich via price controls. Social control via the elimination of prostitution and the minimization of the tango had already been tested. The painful process of industrialization had already been started, ensuring that the prior government would suffer the consequences of starting the process and the next government would reap many of the benefits. So how would Juan Perón take advantage of this setup? One of the most difficult things to understand is where he fits on the political spectrum. The question remains open to discussion by historians, as he is a bit of a chimera, a mythical combination of two creatures. From the left, Perón's movement will be identified as being led by the people. Labor movements formed the core of his support, and he regularly created policy intended to improve the lives of the working class. Yet Perón was a huge proponent of fascism, 
believing in corporatism and regularly revealing his admiration for the likes of Franco, Mussolini, and Hitler. Perhaps the best term to describe the administration of Perón was one of social fascism, a belief that social democracy was a variant of fascism due to how it prevented a dictatorship of the proletariat. His return in 1941 from his stationing in Italy was fortunate for his rise in power. He achieved the rank of colonel and became entwined with a secret society known as the Grupo de Oficiales Unidos, or GOU. This united officers group had been founded by young military officers who believed that they could do better than the current military political regime. Their goals were largely positive in nature. Most dictators don't believe that they are evil, at least not at the beginning. Instead, they come to power filled with belief that they can make the world a better place. Then, with Machiavellian philosophies that the ends justify the means, they turn to bloodshed to ensure that their vision becomes reality, at any cost. And let's face it, the GOU wasn't trying to overthrow a paradise. Faced with the fraudulent and corrupt democracy that had been allowed to operate during the infamous decade, the group desired to strengthen the unity of the nation, maintain neutrality throughout World War II, and to improve the lives of ordinary Argentinians. Fear of being caught up in the maelstrom of international events loomed over the officers' heads. They became convinced that their nation had to dramatically speed up its policy of import substitution, as well as to strengthen their defenses in case of a foreign power attack. There isn't much evidence for this feeling of impending doom, except for the fact that everyone in the era of World War II felt endangered. In addition to Germany and Japan, who resented the food imports coming out of Argentina to the Allied forces, Argentina greatly feared the spread of Russian communism. Their nation, with a disturbingly high number of poor laborers, appeared ripe for leftist agitation. The group of United Officers decided to act in 1943, hoping that they would be able to introduce enough reforms for workers to stave off what they felt was an inevitable leftist revolution. The Argentinian government had unwittingly been caught in a catch-22 double bind. The military needed the nation to industrialize, but the desperate breakneck pace of industrialization was setting the stage for a communist revolution that would be their end. On June 3rd, 1943, the president demanded the resignation of his minister for war after it was rumored that he had met with socialist revolutionaries who were urging him to serve as their presidential candidate. This forced resignation would prove to be the beginning of the end for the sitting regime. Despite being a founding member of the GOU, Perón could not be found for the meeting on June 4th that initiated the coup. Forces in support of Ramirez, the sacked minister of war, won the day, and at dawn, a small army of 8,000 men loyal to the GOU marched on the home of the president. Fighting in the street resulted in 30 dead and hundreds wounded before the president abandoned his own cause and fled to Uruguay. 
The coup was improvised, quick, relatively bloodless, and celebrated by the Western powers. Three days after the abdication, Ramirez was named the next president of Argentina. His cabinet was entirely made up of military men, but none of them were members of the GOU. Although they had been instrumental in the removal of the president, Pablo Ramirez wasn't a member of the 19-man secret society. Bowing to their role in his rise and fortune, many of the officers' group, including Juan Perón, received lesser secretariat positions. Perón was named as Secretary of Labor and Welfare. He may not have known it right away, but this was the perfect incubator for Peronism. Workers had flocked towards the emergent industrial centers of Argentina. Dilapidated slum housing was all that awaited them as jobs could not be found for the numbers that converged towards the supposed opportunities. The economy remained wholly dependent upon the international community, which resulted in long periods of stagnation followed by runaway inflation. In order to properly industrialize, the nation had to produce a massive surplus of agricultural goods. The cost differential between agricultural commodities and finished industrialized goods made it extremely difficult on rural workers to meet the needs of a system reliant upon import substitution. Foreign investment had remained largely responsible for all of the economic growth experienced in the prior decade, and Argentina's efforts at industrialization had racked up massive debts to foreign powers. Eventually, interest payments on debt finance during the infamous decade would come to eat up half of the agricultural export profits, permanently hindering the end goal of their economic philosophy. Worse, the Industrial Revolution had brought down the market price for raw materials, something that Argentina had a few of, but raised it dramatically for finished products, something Argentina was in desperate need of. Additionally, the gap between the rich and poor remained staggeringly high. The oligarchy owned nearly all of the land, to the absurd degree of 8% of the people owning 80% of the land. Less than 5% of the population earned 70% of the nation's wealth. It was to this economy that immigrants were lured to with the promise of opportunity. Instead, the journey ended for most in indentured servitude. Argentina was progressive in its workforce. Women and children worked in both agricultural and industry. But their inclusion, as well as the influx of immigrants, meant that there was a surplus of willing labor for what largely were menial tasks. By 1949, women would make up an astonishing 45% of all industrial workers in Buenos Aires. Surplus labor competition kept wages preposterously low, ensured an appalling quality of life for the workers. In November of 1943, Perón likely sat despondent at being put in charge of what was a minor government position. He believed that he had the answers for how to help the people of Argentina. But looking at the situation in Argentina, any visionary could see that whoever was capable of bettering the lives of the working class would be immediately and intensely revered. In order to co-opt the issues of women, ethnic minorities, and the worker class, Perón initiated a flurry of pro-worker reforms between 1943 and 1945. 
These included the creation of fair and free labor courts for mediation, the prevention of arbitrary firings, paid holidays, child labor laws, retirement benefits, unionization, including for the first time ever in Argentina farm collectives, better work conditions, improved pay and suspension of evictions, as well as across the board rent freezes. Most of these resemble extremely popular reforms during the first year of Joe Biden's administration, as he attempted to limit the damage that COVID-19 had wrecked upon America's working poor. Yet Biden's approval rating remains astonishingly low, in part because Biden has a hard time selling his success, and the forces that oppose him are extremely effective in getting their opinion out to their supporters. Perone, on the other hand, was an exceptional salesman, but not the type that worked behind the scenes to close the deal. Perone was the type of salesman who liked to be both seen and heard at all times. He ensured that he was seen as responsible rather than his superiors, as being the one that had brought the positive change to the workers. Historian Robert Crassweller points out that if a law was to be proposed, Perone made the announcement. When delegations came to discuss the matter, Perone addressed them. When the law was signed, it was his hand that held the pen. If there was a ceremony that could be worked on, it was held in his office. If a gesture was desired to tilt a strike negotiation to the side of labor, it was Perone who would visit the premises and be photographed chatting with the strikers. If union leaders had to be coaxed, it was to Perone's office that they were invited. As time went on, the entire national movement came to be seen as the personal and sole achievement of Perone, a movement in which Perone led and the labor leaders struggled to maintain his pace. He was using them, not the reverse. He brought an approach that was clearly based upon the military's strictly top-down structure, believing that there were three actors in all labor issues, i.e. the workers, the employers, and the state. He attempted to militarize the trade unions so that they would respond to the government rather than the government reacting to them. If Perone asked you to seek better wages, you were to ask, how high? Carrots and sticks were both utilized to great effect. The CGT2 trade union was deemed illegal by Secretary Perone, for it was, as he claimed, dominated by communists. More to the point, however, CGT1 had agreed to work with him, rather than against him. He did this through propagating the myth that he alone was responsible for any gains regarding labor rights during this time, warning all that were he to be deposed, they would lose everything that he had fought so hard for. Rather than a threat to Perone, the impoverished working class had been transformed into a compliant source of constant support. This near-universal support from workers was fundamental to his rise. And that rise took its next step forward in 1944, after the city of San Juan was reduced to rubble. 10,000 are estimated to have been killed by the seven-magnitude earthquake. In just minutes, more than 100,000, half of the city's population, was displaced and forced to live on the streets. Juan Perón rose to meet the moment. He quickly launched a relief campaign, which he, of course, personally announced, and rapidly commissioned plans to rebuild the province. 
In a time of crisis, Argentina was introduced to their self-proclaimed savior. Keep in mind, however, that popularity doesn't always equate to quality. Perón's newfound popularity allowed him to rub shoulders with Argentina's in-crowd, most notably actress Eva Duarte, a woman that would go on to become Evita Perón, his second wife. The University of Mississippi's Mark Allen Healy writes that disasters such as this one are crucial moments for revealing and also transforming political and social relationships. Insurrections by a nature that had seemed subdued, they unsettle, disrupt, and potentially overthrow apparently natural structures of social power. Because the existing arrangements of power are so often justified as natural, the unexpected reshaping of the natural can call many of those arrangements into question. Such theaters of outrage and blame test the authority of states and technical elites. They can serve to challenge or undo that authority, but also to justify or affirm it. Juan Perón's first wife had died of naturally forming uterine cancer nine years into their marriage. The coupling had produced no children. Indeed, Juan Perón would go on to be married three times but produced no offspring. She would become a schoolteacher after they married. The two had met when he turned 30 and she was only 17. She was nicknamed Potata, or Precious, by her husband, and there are no known controversies regarding their marriage. Despite what appeared to be mutual affection, Juan would rarely publicly speak of his first wife, choosing instead to regularly speak on his second and third marriages. Juan met Eva at a charity event designed to benefit the victims of the San Juan earthquake. The two were married by the end of the following year. She referred to the day that they met as a marvelous day, despite the fact that she was there as part of a fundraiser for a horrifically devastated city. He was 48, and she was 24 when they met. She had come to the fundraiser due to her successful run as part of the cast of a daily radio soap opera. She would go on from her big break to play both Elizabeth I and Alexandra Federini, Tsar Nicholas II's wife, in a historical drama titled Great Women of History. Her five to 6,000 peso a month earnings made her one of the highest paid radio actresses in the country. Mixing politics with pleasure, Juan encouraged Eva to lead broadcast performers to unionize. The union that formed would of course be one which she would be the head of, and the only one in the country that Labor Secretary Perón would permit to legally operate. Whether it was done for love or part of a scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, soon Eva Duarte began a daily radio program entitled Towards a Better Future. This serialized soap opera would dramatize the accomplishments of Juan Perón, serving as another way to highlight the message to the masses that Juan Perón, and Juan Perón alone, was the one responsible for their care. In 1944, President Ramirez resigned after Argentina finally succumbed to Allied pressure to declare war on the Axis powers. 
General Farrell was bumped up to president, and Perón took that man's former role in the war ministry, while simultaneously retaining his power as labor secretary. By this point, he clearly saw the benefits of being the one in a position to aid the working class. He took to the task as war minister in the same manner that he had approached labor. He expanded the size and power of the military by immediately boosting its budget and manpower, all while simultaneously making sure that the soldiers knew who was cutting the checks. The military's expenditures more than doubled in the one year that Perón had been placed in charge. Officer pay was increased, and the military's living quarters were immediately refurbished. The increased quality of life definitely contributed to his popularity within the military, a key political player in Argentina's history. Soon he cashed in on all of that popularity and was named Vice President of Argentina. His elevated position enhanced both his power and prestige, as well as his reach. Using his newfound soapbox, he furthered the cause of unions, but only the ones that pledged loyalty to him. Popularity can be a dangerous double-edged sword, however. Robin Schwarma tells us that leadership should not be a popularity contest. It's about leaving your ego at the door. The name of the game is to lead without a title. In 1945, both parts of that quote would be tested. Perón never left his ego at the door, and it quickly became apparent that he was a direct threat to his president's rule. Keep in mind, the previous military coup began in 1943 because a president had forced a potential challenger to resign in disgrace. History would repeat itself. In October of 1945, the Navy took advantage of labor unrest to force Juan Perón to resign his positions of power. They believed that the unrest signaled a weak moment for the rising star. To some extent, Perón must have concurred as he agreed to resign on the condition that he would be permitted to give a farewell address. That speech would be broadcast nationwide. Professor Stephen Hyland of Ohio State University recaps the address, telling us that Perón spoke as a civilian who was deeply committed to working-class struggles for social benefits. He detailed the accomplishments of his time as secretary and confirmed that President Farrell had promised to guarantee all social benefits earned to date. Thus, further mass mobilization or civil unrest were unnecessary. He then declared his aspirations for all to hear, stating that we shall win in a year or we shall win in ten, but we shall win. I now request order so we can go ahead in our triumphal march. But should it be necessary, someday I might request war. Four days after his resignation speech, he was arrested. The intent was to subject him to a show trial that would discredit him, halting his political rise once and for all. But they underestimated the support that the labor secretary had built up for a moment such as this. Keep in mind that he had regularly portrayed all of the labor gains as reversible if something happened to him. He also had positively spun each and every success story as something that he had done at great personal cost and difficulty for the working poor of Argentina. 
Labor unions, which he had previously worked to bend to his side, organized immediate nationwide strikes and rallies to protest his imprisonment. Eva, who remained his girlfriend during this key moment, took to the radio and rallied nationwide support. By October 17th, eight days after his arrest, the government of Argentina was forced to release him. Failure to do so would have meant mass anarchy. The unrest was such that on the night of his release, he addressed 300,000 people from the balcony of the presidential palace itself, vowing to lead the people to victory in the upcoming presidential election. Populism was easily visible in the moment, with Perón concluding that this is the people. This is the suffering people who represent the pain of the motherland which we must reclaim. This true celebration of democracy, represented by a people who march, now also to ask their officials to fulfill their duty to reach the right of the true people. The ovation lasted for a full 15 minutes. It was also clear that Perón was able to lead without a title, making his success in what would be a relatively fair democratic election inevitable. He moved swiftly. Four days later, he married Eva Duarte, and she changed her name to Evita Perón. This took out an argument against the former colonel, namely their living situation as they were cohabitating before marriage, which upset a huge number of traditionalist Catholics. Marrying this popular actress was another stepping stone to power. October 17th became officially the launch date of Perón's presidential campaign. It would go on to become known as Loyalty Day in Argentina. The political movement of the poor, known to Peronism as the Shirtless, was born that night, and he formed the Justilist Party with a platform for a new Argentina. It advocated social justice, political sovereignty, and economic independence. Elections were agreed to for 1946, and Perón's allies were immediately purged from the sitting government. The opposition to Perón was aided by the United States, who under Ambassador Spruill Broaden, which clearly sounds like a James Bond villain, published the Blue Book, which described Perón as a Nazi agent. At this point, they were 100% sure that he was a right-wing fascist. Perón quickly reversed it into a political game, releasing his own blue and white book, which detailed the extent that the U.S. had manipulated the domestic politics of Argentina. Even better for his cause, he directly linked the U.S. and President Farrell. His opposition's association with foreign imperialists further pushed the working and middle class towards Perón, who was a clear nationalist. The last effort to blunt his rise was for the sitting government to grant a significant Christmas bonus for all workers. In 20th century Latin America, there was no shame which prevented buying someone's vote. But the business owner successfully appealed that they wouldn't have enough time to implement the policy. The government reversed course to side with big business and promised the people that it would come eventually. Perón again capitalized on the moment, pointing out that the government was in the pocket of the owners and that he, as president, would never have been swayed to indefinitely delay such a pro-worker policy. 
He won with 55% of the vote. Juan Perón, a boy born illegitimately and needed a fake baptismal certificate just in order to go to military school, had just achieved the presidency. He initially gained his role in government as labor secretary through participation of a military coup via a secret society. He successfully maneuvered the levers of power that he was granted to gain a loyal following which he tied directly to himself. He challenged his sitting president and won through intelligent political scheming. Juan Perón had proven that he was incredibly popular. In our next episode, we will examine his policies and actions while in charge to figure out if he has any qualities.